0: All right. So welcome to the Bridge Podcast. I'm here with Jeffrey Holmes. Jeffrey is a composer and uh, an educator, among other things. And um, I'm very familiar with his music. But uh, from what I understand, there's a lot of sort of source code that I want to delve into that, uh, you know, affects how he thinks about it. And so uh, I'm excited to talk to you, Jeffrey. Thanks for joining me. Great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat as well. So uh, I usually start these Podcast off by asking about people's coffee habits, but uh, from our brief exchange, I know that you don't drink coffee. And so, no coffee uh, for me. So, uh, my way of rewording this, I guess, is how do you manage to have ideas and how do you uh, bring yourself to action to do projects? Slash do you have a beverage that you prefer?
1: Do I have what that I prefer?
0: A, a beverage that you prefer. Oh, over coffee. Beverage.
1: Yeah. Uh, not really. Um, Just water. Definitely no coffee uh i i'm just i don't know i'm not into the i mean coffee smells good and it tastes good but just the caffeine just whacks me out i just i don't like the feeling of it um i drank coffee when i was an early teenager for a little bit but not very long and i drank a lot of alcohol for a lot of years but that was several years ago i don't drink anything anymore a glass of wine with the wife here and there but uh, I just drink water and, uh, I'm, uh, very, very, uh, physically active. So I, I eat very healthy. I eat hundred percent organic, very clean food, no processed food, uh, um, no sugar, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, so no coffee for me, definitely. Uh, every once in a while I, I'll drink a little bit of like mountain tea or something like that, but, uh, trying to think uh um uh, kind of no beverages at all to tell you the truth <laughs>
0: that's very interesting uh yeah no, definitely I'm no a, copy i'm a total beverage guy so in my mind yeah. i'm like how how do you operate but um well i used to used to for a long time it was bourbon
1: <laughs> bourbon <laughs> and then for a long time it was uh hepa bison i see but uh but that was a lot of years ago
0: Gotcha. And it's interesting that, like, I, I did get a sense, uh, just from your music that you would be a, a sort of like disciplined person. Um, and so it's interesting, you know, no sugar that makes sense to me. Um, yeah. Interesting. Um,
1: yeah, I don't know if I'm really disciplined. Um, I mean, in some ways, I guess it's more like I'm, um, directionally motivated more so than disciplined.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, now that you know we've gotten over the coffee question um I, i'm curious so you know uh, your music's been described um i think maybe by you or by other people as post-spectral and i'm curious what this means to you um because obviously there's like the spectral school of comp- you know composers like uh mirai and uh, grise but i'm not sure if that's what you're referring to or um what how, how are you post spectral well I, yeah
1: i, I... Several years ago, I, I wrote a piece for the Talia Ensemble in New York, and in their PR stuff for the piece and for the concert and everything, they called me post-spectral. <laughs> they, they tagged me with that phrase, so I uh, it kind of stuck. It's accurate, I guess, in some ways. I mean, spectralism is, uh, I love spectralism. Grise and Mirai are two, two of my favorite composers. I like them very much. But spectralism itself is a tricky word. Um, it's, you know, the origin of the word has to do with uh, spectrogram and the uh, computer analysis of the physical properties of sound. And by physical properties of sound, we mean overtones. So spectralism began as something that was not, it, it, it occasionally incorporated electronic elements into the music, but it did not necessarily uh, have to have electronic music. It could be for purely acoustic instruments, but the, in the origin of spectralism, there was electronics used in the analysis of sounds to create musical materials. Mm-hmm. So there was electronics as an element, but more for, most so, excuse me, more so uh, in kind of the pre-compositional phases. Uh, even the spectralists themselves, Griset hated the term. You know, kind of mm-hmm. like Debussy hated being called impressionist, and it seems to happen that way in history uh, and moved away from it. Murai really, Grise moved into like really exploring more large scale form and the perception of time and Murai moved more into kind of this, uh, kind of impressionistic, real sonority French kind of thing. So they moved away from it, but, the but the, the phrase post-spectralist, there are other people that are called post-spectralist, namely, uh, Georg Friedrich Haas and uh, Radalescu and a a few other composers have been called post spectrals To me, so to me, what it would mean, uh, anything that's post is going to be something that's in a bit of a different period that is using some of the core elements of the named period, but in a different way or in a new way or under some Mm. new, Mm. with some new perspective. So if I would, you know, adopt and accept and embrace is a better word, the term post-spectral for me, I guess what it would mean is uh the use of microtonality and uh, the occasional use of overtones, uh overtone tunings. Gotcha. And so in that way, post-spectral will be appropriate uh in its application to my music. But I, I would never sit down with a computer and look at a spectrogram to generate musical material. Blah blah blah. I've been interested in microtonality um, ever since I've been composing. The first few pieces I wrote had uh, microtonal elements, and um, part of that I think has to do with when I was a teenager, my early teenage years. I played a lot of uh, electric guitar, and electric guitar uh, has a lot of bending of notes, mm. right? And, any style, it's just a, it's a, you know, in most styles of music outside classical music, the bending of notes would be applied or perceived as an expressive element, mm-hmm. right? Like in blues or something, you bend the note, it's an expressive thing. So I think when I started composing, hearing pitches other than the equal tempered octave was just a part of my sound world. So I always incorporated microtones. Um, and of, of various types, uh, thirds of tones, six of tones, quarter tones. And for many years, I've also used uh, uh, overtones like just intonation and such, but it's never ever um, a mono system. Mm-hmm. Microtonality, whether it's third tones, six tones, whether it's overtones and all that is is always a color on a multi-variant, uh, Sort of palette, right? Like mm-hmm. Debussy knew from the very beginning. The first time he used the whole tone scale, he knew to write a whole piece just using the whole tone scale, you're dead in the water. Like he right. incorporated it as an element within other elements. So for me, microtonality, whether it's any of the different types of microtonality, are um, are they're part of the musical language, but they're not the musical language is not contained or confined within a particular microtonal concept or tuning. And that's, that contradicts with many different people that write microtonality. There's many people that write whole pieces that are just intonation or whole pieces. that are just quarter tone or this, that and the other thing. And I kind of feel like that's uh, for me uh, a real flawed Mm -hmm. approach and a flawed system uh, because um, it's monotone completely Mm -hmm. monotone it's like it's like serialism like 12 tone serialism if you're going to do all 12 notes all the time then it becomes very gray or very
0: uh uh uh, redundant
1: redundant so so for me microtonality has always been a part of my musical language among other um other uh things that i do in rhythm and harmony and melody and such but it's one tool. So in that way, the use of some overtones, the use of microtonality, would be um, a justification to call my music post spectral because uh, Murai and Grise, as they attempted to uh, write music based around these sonograms, they used a lot of the upper partials of the overtone series, which are not tuned in equal temperament. So they used quarter tones and they just uh, um, approximated them. And there's a, a wonderful piece by uh, Georg Friedrich Haas, who I mentioned a few minutes ago. He wrote a piece for six microtonally tuned pianos and orchestra. And the title of it is Limited Approximations. And he titled it Limited Approximations because even with six pianos tuned in, all, you know, eighth of tone, sixth of tone, whatever, you're still approximating hmm. uh, um, overtone tuning. It's still there's It's still not exact unless you're, literally uh, just playing harmonics on an instrument, which some people do in the microtonal world. But again, I'm not interested in static mm-hmm. music. I'm interested in dynamic music. I'm interested in dramatic music. And one of the, the traditional musical tools that I use very frequently in the, as, as a base element of construction of a lot of my pieces is concept of transposition. Mm, okay. and when you use transposition um uh it becomes an issue with with overtone tunings and that sort of a thing because most overtone music just stays in one zone but i'm more interested in uh 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 music that that has more of uh, the travels that, mm. that, that develops i guess is a better word
0: gotcha. yeah
1: so that's gotcha. that's what i guess i would say about post-spectralism okay so it doesn't offend me, but I'm not, like, I'm not flying a flag.
0: Gotcha. I, I heard somebody <laughs> describe the term, like, psychoacoustics as, like, kind of like a marketing trick. Because, like, if you throw a psycho in front of something, everybody's going to be like, oh, I'm interested now. And some Yeah, the, it's kind
1: of, you know, the post thing, too. Like, post mm-hmm. is an interesting way to say anything. Because anything that's post means you're defining it by the negative. Mm-hmm. Right? Because if it's post-romantic or post-whatever, you're saying it's not romantic, but but you're not really saying what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, so post spectral—it's not spectral, but I'm not telling you what it is. So it's kind of a weird, you know, terminology. It's kind of a weird, weird thing anyway. Any, you know, neo, post—all of those things are are always, uh, you know, a little bit. Uh, I'm not saying they're invalid, but I would question the uh, the motivation for application.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think similarly, you know, saying micro in front of something can do the same thing. And a lot of people who are, quote, microtonal composers kind of lead with that almost as a marketing thing. But yeah, um, it seems like that's Absolutely. secondary or like kind of like beside the point to you. Say that again. What's secondary? Like, I mean, uh, to you, it doesn't seem like you're out there flying the microtone out. At least, no, out. It's like yeah. It just seems to be part of your language.
1: Yeah, it's 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 it's. Uh, I guess what I could say is it's it's one of the materials of mm-hmm. my language. Uh, the way that a couple different scales are materials, or a type of chord is a material. So a type of tuning is also a material. The mm-hmm. type of rhythm or a type a use of a polymeter versus a polyrhythm or different types of materials and mm-hmm. and microtonality would be that way for me. And again, it goes back to the origin of my use of microtonality, which is sounds i heard in my head when no one i knew was writing microtonality i mean i was i didn't know anybody that was doing microtonality i just that's just when you know when you close your eyes and imagine music you just hear certain sounds and if you're truly following your inner ear and your imaginative creative voice Mm -hmm. you're going after whatever those sounds are in your head there's a lot of composers that have a conception that they would like to write music using quarter tones or using a whole tone scale, or using serialism, but the the problem is that they're then searching for something that makes sense within a preconceived sort of landscape of sound. Right. Right. Because they're going to then try to make something good out of quarter tones, or try to make something good out of whole tone, or try to because they already have this this non musical idea that they want to do that, and then they're going to try to then make something musical out of it rather than closing your eyes and following your your imagination. And that, that's what led me to microtonality. So, you know, I was writing microtonality when I was a student in school before I knew almost, I mean, I knew of a few microtonal pieces, like one by Charles Ives and, you know, a couple of uh, uh, Zenakis and Stockhausen and just a few pieces, but nobody that I knew, like no people that I knew. And in fact, my teachers like you're gonna write microtone you want that to be out you know i had to like Mm -hmm. challenge them to be able to do it in a lot of situations so uh for me the use of it is very much um organic Mm -hmm. lyrical expressive it's not a i'm not interested in the science the science like the scientific side like i'm I, i know i've studied you know the different schools of microtonality but uh that's not you know, that's not the the side of it that motivates me artistically.
0: Gotcha. Now, um, our, our mutual friend, Michael Kaderka, like I feel like I describe him to people as a tuning expert. Um, And I think yeah. he's ready to geek out on it, but it's interesting yep. hearing that you're a lot more organic about it. And so, um, you know, I'm sure that, you know, like your your Chapman page says, uh, you know, like expertise, composition, and music theory. I'm sure that you are an expert in the science of it, but if you sort of don't think of it in those terms, um. Like, I mean, I guess, how, how do you think about it uh, without like geeking out too hard? Because in my mind, that's the only way to think about it. Well, Michael Kudurka is, uh, he is an expert.
1: I mean, he mm-hmm. truly knows what he's talking about. He knows the, a lot about the, the historical evolution of tuning. He knows a lot about uh, the tuning systems in different um, eras of music history Uh, I would definitely say he's an expert. In fact, I was at his uh, uh, doctoral uh, dissertation presentation, and it was one of the most amazing lectures I've ever seen, where he talked about the tuning and different Renaissance tunings, Baroque tunings, uh, you know, and and Mike and I are very good friends. We've been friends for 20, probably more than 20, probably 20 years now or something like that. And I've written several pieces specifically for him. I don't even know how many five, six pieces, I don't even know how many pieces. And all of them use microtonality. And uh, he and I have had many discussions about microtonality. Um, And he probably knows my language better than anybody else ever on earth. Mm -hmm. He he knows how to, you know, when he, when I write a piece for him and, and he's engraving it for me, he can, you know, call me up and go, hey, bar 229 I really think that G should be a G sharp, and he's usually right. Like it's usually a smudge from the pencil or something that messed it up. Like he's, he's he knows my stuff out, my my the 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 the, uh, the the grammar of my language that well. But he and I have a little bit of not. I'm not gonna say different interest in microtonality but our our interests certainly overlap but his veers off in a direction that that doesn't concern me as much and that's mm-hmm. uh the difference between mean tone tuning and uh j.i tuning and you know these kind of things and again that i guess is what you're getting at when you say geek out like because mm-hmm. he can get talk about the you know the this the difference between the tuning of 1752 versus 1722 and that kind of thing and for me it's again it's it's more of a uh an expressive thing about what i'm doing today i'm not as interested in uh replicating um any of the tunings that have led us to this point in the evolution of tuning though i'm not in any way saying it's it's not interesting or it's not engaging or anything like that it's just not my personal uh uh place it's not my personal focus Mm -hmm. so he could talk about a lot of that stuff that in much much more articulately and much more accurately uh than i could
0: Mm -hmm. gotcha um but he's brilliant
1: i mean his tuning you know his his microtone guitar company with that he's got going with the. uh uh, the movable fret or exchangeable fretboards is fascinating, and he's got a lot of pieces that he's had people write for him. And he's done Bach on these things. He did it before anyone else did, and there's a couple other people that are now doing Bach on these movable fretboards. And and, and the thing is, he, out of all the people that do that kind of thing, he's the one that would be able to explain to you the exact percentage of tunings and why, and historically where that was happening and everything. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it, it's quite uh, uh, impressive. What, what he has done and what he is doing especially now that he has his microtonal guitar company
0: mm-hmm. uh, I think probably the first time that I came across your music was when um, I think it was the premiere of the microtonal uh, studies uh, with uh, Brian head and Michael Kudurka at USC yeah. and um, I remember being fascinated by that approach because it was essentially two guitars that were you know standard tuning but uh, they were you know separate. So it's like t- two parallels that were like, I think maybe a third tone apart. Is that right?
1: Uh, well, yeah. So so that kind of that, that brings up the other point about microtonality that's important to me uh, and where I differ from some other microtonal composers. Uh, one thing that's a, of primary importance to me is a microtonality that has a pragmatic element. Mm-hmm. And by pragmatic element, it means I want to write all my music, whether moments are microtonal or not as things that can be done on standard orchestral instruments mm-hmm. i'm not interested in um like the harry parch instruments i mean they're in but there's an important history there especially for us here in california with harry parch and microtonality like i say. But i'm not interested in designing instruments or right. writing for a, a, a quarter tone flute that has special fingering keys and you know mm-hmm. i want normal instruments with normal players to be able to pick up a score of mine and and do it mm-hmm. so notationally as well as technically are, that that's something that's very much important to me the farthest i go with that would be to have um harps tune out from one another or guitars tune out from one another but what i mean by tune out is like the microtonal studies that you brought up here uh, and I should say, I write microtonal tonal music for flutes, clarinets, for brass, for mm-hmm. violin, viola, cello, and and it's just asking them to finger things in a certain way, but they're not actually retuning their instruments. With the guitar pieces, you know, guitar players, if you've ever seen a guitar recital, I mean, it's almost after every piece, they're retuning their instrument. It's constantly mm-hmm. uh, tuning. So what I did in that piece is I had two... Um, the two guitars are each perfectly in tune with each with themselves. Like mm-hmm. if they were in separate rooms, one another, they'd sound like a normal guitar, but one was slightly lower than the other one. Mm-hmm. And, and the percentage that it was lower was based on a seventh partial harmonic of the overtone series. So it was 31 cents or 31, uh, uh, 31% of a half step lower than the other guitar. So you have equal temperament being employed on each instrument since they're fretted instruments. And then you but you also have just intonation being employed in terms of the, uh, uh, the distance that they're tuned from one another. So if one is tuned by, so it ends up being um, uh, a third of a half step or a sixth of a tone. So if the one that's tuned down is playing sort of uh, in the register a little lower than the other one, then it's a six tone lower. But then in the piece, you can write it to where one instrument then goes above the other one. And then they're a third of tone apart. So you have six of a tone and third of a tone based on the the musical moments and the, the, the spacing within the register and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So I've written other pieces for Mike too. I've written a lot of solo pieces for him that use a lot of microtonality, and they use just intonation and they use quarter tones and thirds of tones and six of tones, but they're done by bending mm-hmm. notes. So it's a normally tuned guitar, or you might have, you know, the the sixth string might be tuned to E-flat instead of E-natural or something like that, but then there's quarter tones and six of tones, and he came up with a system where to do a quarter tone, you bend the string this way, but to do a sixth of the tone, you just pull it one direction or another. Gotcha. So you don't you know, to sit down, you could play Mozart or Beethoven on it, it normal, and then you just start playing my music. It sounds normal, like you, 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 but all the microtones come out. You don't have to get some electronic tuner and tune it to some percentage and all this kind of stuff. But again, that is that is to me is uh um it, it's just not what I'm interested in. I there's there's a certain element of 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 me that is uh, a traditionalist where I'm interested in traditional instruments, traditional some elements of traditional notation, though I can vary from that. And, um, and uh, you know, so I've, I've always from the very beginning gone about uh, writing the microtonal sounds that I want to write in a way that anybody who plays a normal orchestral or classical instrument, who does not even know anything about microtonality, is able to perform uh, with great accuracy.
0: Gotcha. I guess there's sort of like different archetypes of microtonal people. And one of them, I think, is basically like the instrument collector. And I recently spoke to Bill Satheris. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, but what's his name? uh, Bill Satheris. Uh, He's at Wisconsin. Um, Super interesting dude. And um, he's been doing this experiment with like, uh, quote, a hyper piano, which is very much not at all uh, in your sort of like line of thinking. Right.
1: That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I don't know his name, but it sounds interesting.
0: Uh, when, when I spoke to him, I mean, it was interesting because he had so many different guitars and all these different instruments. And I've always been the type of person who's like, I can't afford to buy like you know four different guitars and like Mike right, buy seems... a
1: different instrument for each piece you're playing.
0: Yeah, and like <laughs> it's I'm glad that Mike is addressing that sort of problem with his detachable fretboards. But um, that's always struck struck me as just like an investment that I can't justify. And so like I think a lot of people won't explore microtona tonality because yeah. they don't have access. But then there's like the person who's totally digital and that's sort of seduced me away from traditional instruments. And so I'm curious, um, have you ever been sort of like tempted away from traditional instruments or is it just you've never had any question about it? Yeah,
1: here's how I feel about that. Um, I know what you mean. I mean, when you get into electronics, you can do anything. Um, This is a very complicated topic for me, and I have a couple of very, very clear ideas and feelings that I'll try to consolidate. Um, number one, I'm I'm very um, sensitive acoustically, yeah. and I like the colors. That I, anyway, I, I have a lot of synesthesia type things where I hear color and and see color and these kind of things. And for me, I have a hard time with electronic music and classical music in any context. And and there's a lot of reasons. People usually I say something like that, then people go, "Oh, you don't know what you're talking about," whatever.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The thing is this: no matter what. If there could be 20 instruments on stage if one of them is electronic coming through a speaker to me it completely alters the the landscape the acoustic landscape mm-hmm. completely alters the sound and it's the same for me when you know certain instruments are are amplified just microphoned and it's a bit of an issue because you know one of the pieces or two of the pieces i wrote for mike uh, michael kudurka have uh guitar solo with like five or six instruments and in order to hear the guitar it's got to be amplified a little bit so there's that that's that's I guess the, the the boundary of my personal acceptability with that sort of thing so the acoustic landscape becomes quite um altered and what I mean by that is is overtones and you know so when you have a cello or a piano or a trombone Mm -hmm. there's a certain exact precise set of overtones that are produced when any of those instruments make a sound. Mm -hmm. And those sounds uh, have been, um, uh, I don't want to use the word again because it means we're crossing use of the word here, but they've been finely tuned. And I don't mean by Mm -hmm. tuning, but finely uh, sculpted over the centuries to have a certain timbre. Mm-hmm. and have a certain sound, and by by instrument builders, by people with a hammer and a chisel building these instruments, to have a certain quality of sound to them with a certain overtone spectrum, like clarinet has very prominent odd harmonics, and flute has very prominent even harmonics, or whatever, you know, so then when you get uh, your sound source to be a speaker, mm-hmm. as opposed to a violin that's evolved for hundreds of years, you, then you have a whole different sort of a, a acoustic spectrum that, that is created out of that. And the problem is it can vary quite a bit from speaker to speaker, as people know, it can vary, you know, that will also then affect the way that the other acoustic instruments in the room are sounding. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of uh, problems. And for me, it just bothers me. Like I can be listening to a piece of music and be really into it. And I just go, boom, I heard an electronic sound. And it's like when you're watching a movie, it's like, oh, boom, there's the cameraman's shadow, right. <laughs> or something. and just right. like pulls you out of it. Like I'm, I'm suddenly not listening to the music anymore. I'm suddenly, boom, there's an electronic sound. So for me, it just it just bothers me in a real uh, fundamental way. Mm-hmm. The other thing is this, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I don't want to offend anybody who does electronic music, but you know, please do, you know, show a little backbone here.
0: Yeah.
1: I've listened to I know I've, I did a when I did my doctoral degree my one of my academic I did a minor in electroacoustic music so I studied it historically I studied the evolution of it I studied you know the you know analog I, I spliced tape in a studio I studied digital technology I, I'm not unfamiliar with it at all and I've yet to hear a single piece of classical music using electronics that's as convincing as industrial music or Mm. dance music or other electronic music going on in pop music and in the rest of the world. I mean, that music is so much more effective Mm -hmm. that when, you know, if you go and you hear, you know when I was an early teenager, I was, for a while I was into a lot of industrial music like Skinny Puppy and Ministry and, 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 you know and even that, even more music today, like, you know um, uh, uh, all kinds of like dance music, I don't, I, you know, uh, Skrillex or whatever, or you know, all these kind of people, Swedish House Mafia, whoever all these people are. It's the use of electronics is so much more effective and mm-hmm. so much more um, engaging than when you hear somebody with a violin playing something in the background. Then you hear like. A microphone picked up and it goes whoa 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 with some electronic sounds. And it just sounds silly. I mean, it just sounds like like. I mean, I'm going a bit f- maybe I'm going a bit far with it. There are some great electronic pieces. I mean, I guess. <laughs> but to me, uh, I it just seems r- like the fundamental strength of what I feel, in my opinion, that I feel we do in classical music. Is that you have human beings in a room watching and listening to other human beings creating something mm-hmm. in an acoustic manner. Right? There's not a pre-recorded element. Right. You're not, you know, sit in a concert hall, listen to pre-recorded music. I'll do that in my car. I'll do that while I'm washing dishes. Like yeah. to me, the, the the advantage that we have in the music that we do is the, the, the communication of the moment. The idea that there's a human being sitting there with something that's not even electric, making a sound that is moving us or giving us an adventure or an experience or sharing something with us or shocking us or scaring us or whatever. To me, that's that's like the biggest advantage that this type of music has over other types of music, whether it's you know, alternative rock or metal or, or hip-hop or whatever that, that's mm-hmm. intended to be in a recorded medium right right so i feel like when you import that it's kind of going back to the uh the microtonal uh conversation where like a lot of people have this idea that they want to use electronics right but where but but then you try to find a music out of it rather than like hearing a creative idea as the origin of it you know there's, like it's almost like in in some sort of circles of classical music it's almost like um it's almost like it adds a small amount of like prestige or intrigue if your piece is for x x, 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 x and live electronics right right like it's for flute oboe trumpet trombone piano and live electronics mm-hmm. like as a tag phrase on the end but then i always wonder like well what are you doing with those ele- here's the thing what are you doing with the electronics and why can you not have a normal instrument play it Okay, Mm -hmm. so maybe you have a reason that you can't have a normal acoustic instrument play it. Okay, if that's the case and you're going to have people sit in a concert hall and listen to a speaker, what's the reason you don't have all the instruments come out of the speaker?
0: Mm -hmm. That's fair.
1: So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in no way saying that people are right or wrong for doing anything they're doing. I'm just saying my personal opinion about these things. And I'm in no way criticizing. There's pieces that I like you know, by people that are for live instrument electronics. And uh, my wife is a soprano and she does, you know, she's done a few pieces with with her doing stuff with electronics. I mean, there's certain validity there. Me personally, in the music that I choose to spend the moments and the hours of my life listening to, Mm -hmm. the electronic element is vastly inferior to an acoustic one. And if I wanted an electronic element, the music of outside of classical music is much more engaging.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I think I would agree. Um, yeah, I'm curious. Uh, so like, you know, I'm an electric guitarist basically and I, I have studied classical guitar, but uh, I, I'm curious, does this extend to sort of like amplified instruments that are meant for amplification? Like, because there's Yeah, you know, there's... then you get into
1: a whole nother thing and, and that's, that. then you're kind of like, yeah, then in my opinion, then mm-hmm. i played electric i played when i was a kid i played uh piano and clarinet for a lot of years when i was a teenager i played a lot of electric guitar and then when i was a late teenager i played a lot of classical guitar and i composed the whole time and by the time i was 20 something i just stopped playing instruments and just composed and i just mm-hmm. i've done conducting and whatever but i just composed so i have history playing acoustic as well as a lot of years playing electric guitar mm-hmm. and acoustic instruments like piano and clarinet so i've done both and But I did spend a lot of years playing electric guitar, so I'm not unfamiliar with with the the point you're making it. And I feel it's like this. There's a lot of great electric guitar music. I, I like a lot of it. I feel like it's 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 not necessarily uh, in my sound world of classical music. And I don't mean classical music is like an exclusive thing because even like Mirai, who you mentioned, he's got a great concerto for two electric guitars and orchestra, Mm -hmm. Um, you know. uh, So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, uh, sort of dashed lines between these things. There's always exceptions. There's always blurs. There's always elisions between these ideas. But if we're generalizing, um, I'm not personally interested in composing music for acoustic violin and cello and piano to be played with an electric guitar
0: Mm -hmm.
1: for a lot of mainly because the sounds so and there's people that do it effectively i know that especially in europe there's a lot of people writing for electric guitar with ensemble now and i have friends who have written pieces and that's that's great that's fine um maybe i'm biased because i played electric guitar for a long time Mm -hmm. and i kind of don't want to do that right now (laughs) maybe but or if i do want to do that if I do want to do that, I want to be, you know, drunk in a bar playing in front of a screaming crowd with, you know, all sorts of craziness going on. Maybe that's what I want. I don't want to be sitting in a concert hall where people can't cough and be playing my electric guitar, you know. Right. Maybe it's it, there's a social element to it, too. Where, And, and of course, people might listen to this and say I'm incredibly uh, biased and compartmentalizing things, but, you know, tough shit. <laughs> that's the way i feel
0: you know um i have a sort of stupid question uh just for fun uh but i just want to you know verify because i know that so many somebody... yeah. i have smart friends that have asked me this and they've been like why do you think this but um is there any reason to think that there's anything special about 4 4 or sorry 432 over 440 i think i know your answer <laughs> oh right well here's
1: well here's 432 right here my piano is tuned to 432 <laughs> um, yeah you're talking about like uh,
0: numerology
1: <laughs> yeah dropping acid and like being one with the crescent moon and that kind of thing <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah um,
0: so it's bullshit know. right
1: I don't know I, honestly I don't know I, I tuned my piano to 432 I've always just kind of preferred it but maybe if you gave me like the Pepsi challenge and said which is which i might not be able to tell you the difference but maybe i could i mean i, I have a color sound thing mm-hmm. maybe it would affect me um i totally know what you're getting at with this like there's some people to say that 432 is like more in tune with the universe or or yeah. this kind of thing maybe it is i don't is. know <laughs> i i can't say it's like an overriding uh uh dogma as a as a sort of a maxim. i can't say is that but i will you know, I, I'm not going to give you the answer to the question, but I will provide my small little percentage of evidence. That being, I like my piano a lot better at 432. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> That's all I can say about it. <laughs> I, why? I, I'm not sure. My wife's piano downstairs is a 440. Uh,
0: I That's don't what- know. I approached the question sort of like uh, assuming that you were going to think it's bullshit, but that's interesting because uh...
1: I'm also very biased about numerology, and uh, 432 is a nine number. Okay. I'm very biased towards nine numbers, and 440 is an eight number, and eight is very bad. So there may be that that comes into my, you
0: know, in
1: completely like a superstitious way
0: it's interesting an eight versus a nine number um in my mind that's like a two versus a three number like i i'm always trying to yeah. reduce to primes but does it does primacy of number i don't know if that's the right term for that but do, do prime numbers mean anything to you no as a composer okay interesting. no uh
1: sort of in a way it, i have really bad ocd like really bad like like i'm as I'm driving on the freeway, I'm counting everything that goes by and pillars under bridges. And I have to know how many blueberries I'm eating in my hand. And like, I've incredibly steps I take on certain sides of the sidewalk and like, it's craziness Mm -hmm. and composing is a way that sort of therapeutically is, is an avenue for that, that helps me control it in other places in my life. Mm -hmm. But numerology is the main source of it. And, um, with numerology, it, it's become a, a very primary building block of my compositions. using numerology. And I, I know exactly how many bars are going to be in every piece before I start writing it. I know the in, in terms of like a, a fractal mathematics, how every okay. section completely works down into geometric shapes in terms of proportion, these kind of things. So prime, you know, and, and uh, prime numbers Uh, It's an interesting thing. There are better and worse numbers. Nine is a really good number. 18 is a multiple of nine, but it's not as good as 27. 36 is okay. 45 is not so good, but 54 is really good. Uh, And that has to do with multiplication of numbers. Like 36 is a nine number, but it's imperfect because it's a four.
0: 45
1: is a nine number, and it's even less perfect because it's a five. 54 is a nine number but it's more perfect because it's six which is one of the the thirds of nine so it's it it can go totally cuckoo <laughs> and this is what i this is like the primary like this is a glimpse into like my like pre-compositional work right here <laughs> this this moment this moment right here like kudurka knows as well mike kudurka knows this well you know a few other people that have analyzed some of the music that that uh from the macro you know uh, uh the macro if we talk about like uh i don't know if you use this word or not but like the isomorphic plan of a piece of music the the background middle ground and foreground in like a shankarian okay. uh perspective uh are reflective of one another, and okay. not only in terms of uh background middle ground and foreground harmonies and pitch relationships but also in terms of proportions numbers uh and sometimes it gets quite complex and i have you know my compositional stuff that i have you know is usually lots of stuff like this which is usually a whole lot of numbers Mm -hmm. you know of of numbers of different proportions of things that are happening Uh, and that's that's a, a Uh, something that's uh, 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 very consistent and very um, rigorous and uh, in in all of my pieces going back to when I first started actually notating compositions in my teenage years I guess a good word you could apply would be um, obsessive.
0: (laughs) <laughs> that notebook looks very similar to it. what I do over here.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah I'm not I sure if you got to it. see that PDF of the uh, little, like algorithmic things that I was working on. And I don't know if I mean, I assume that the, the algorithmic element is maybe a turn off to you, but um, it sounds similar to how I think. Although I don't necessarily try to have it all be reflective, um, but I think like I'm curious to hear about this. Uh, like It sounds like if you have like a large scale image of it and you zoom in, there's some element that is unified from like global to it's like a
1: kaleidoscopic Mm -hmm. like a kaleidoscope where you've got you know a larger image that is like refracted or a small image that's like refracted on multiple levels that might be it or you know symmetry is a part of it but there's also i have a lot of things that i do that i have all these you know it's like you know like like Bach or Mozart never used the word dominant,
0: mm-hmm. okay.
1: right? But they did it as people, they never used a Roman numeral five with a little seven next to it, but they did it. It's people that came along later that tried to talk about what they did to put these labels on things. And I have a lot of things that I do that I never really tried to name until people asked me to like lecture about my music. So some of these things I have silly sort of names for, but I've tried to like, label them in arbitrary ways that that might not totally arbitrary i guess isn't the right word but that might give some indication so i have you know a lot of stuff that i do rhythmically with symmetries and and things that i call like oval symmetries where you have like a symmetry but the symmetry starts to get disproportionately placed to one side or the other but there's still elements of it that still uh, uh, resemble the symmetry enough to 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 show a relationship so oval symmetries um you know and uh uh you sometimes uh, they they come in terms of you know I, I borrow words from different cultures just to to have things to say like uh you know i have i have these rhythmic talas that i use and then there's some words i've borrowed from uh indian classical music because i think that there's some very interesting uh 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 theory in indian music Talas that are made up of, of V-pogs, Vpogs and matras, which are different sort of applications of what we would really consider um, either uh, uh, changing meters or polymeters, but not polyrhythms, okay. where you have a certain number of division notes and a certain number of accented pulses upon these divisions. And the way that I manipulate these is through using symmetries and oval symmetries. You might have a symmetry, or you, you might have a symmetry and you might have an oval symmetry on one side, and then that oval symmetry is 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 mirrored on the other side, and that creates a larger sort of rhythmic tala, which then has a different one. Then way over here, you get the first one again. So you have a multiple layer like levels. You know, it's it's a symmetry here, but it's also a symmetry here, but it's also a symmetry here. Within the symmetry, there's asymmetries that are then accounted for with mirror versions.
0: Gotcha. Okay.
1: And and that can you know go for minutes and minutes of music a whole piece of music i've written pieces where the entire piece of music is basically one large symmetry with these sub levels that all make perfect sense in terms of the integrity of of the shapes and the proportions um you know this sounds incredibly exciting to tell your friends that about at a party on friday or saturday night (laughs) but it's a tool Right. What's really important is that this is not the origin of the music. This is you know, the origin of the music, again, is when you close your eyes that, that inner ear, that imaginative, creative uh, combination of sonority and expression that then must find a logical, coherent architecture uh, mm-hmm. upon which to, to project itself. So a a way that I am a traditionalist, in some sense, is that I I feel, for me, a masterpiece or art is an object that has a balance of architecture, structure, and logic with expression, inspiration, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that sort of thing. And it has to have both, and they have to cooperate. Right. So we're talking about, you know, oval symmetries and rhythmic talas and numbers and retrogrades and this kind of thing. But that's because it's easy to talk about that. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to talk about why that melody moves me and that melody doesn't.
0: Mm-hmm. True.
1: Right. So I just want to, like, put in that little footnote in the conversation right here that that, you know, what gets me off about music is not some, you know, number plan. Mm-hmm. But but that that exists to as, as a propelling force for whatever um, expressivity it, 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 it is that is the origin of the piece. It needs needs to 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 be uh, effectively communicated and understood.
0: Gotcha. So when you have like a commission or something, um, I'm first of all curious what sort of parameters somebody would give you to work within. And then sort of like once you get those parameters or like requirements or whatever, how do you implement them or how do you like, what's the process generally? Yeah,
1: that's a tricky one. Um, It varies. The most, most, the two most common parameters you would be assigned Mm -hmm. would be the instrumentation and the Mm -hmm. duration. Okay. So like people might want a piece for string quartet and then that's kind of what you're dealing with. People might want a piece that's 10 minutes instead of 30 minutes. And then that's kind of what you're dealing with. Those are the two most common parameters I think that you would be assigned. Uh, Sort of what the instruments are and what the duration is. And that's not always, you know, those aren't always uh, fixed elements. like um, maybe there's an ensemble of 15 players and say, hey, we want a piece for like six or seven people pick out of our subsets out of our larger group you know and they may say well we want a piece that you know could be just at least five minutes but it could be 20 minutes if you want you know and there's there's those you know those that happens not as frequently as people that kind of want a certain thing and a lot of that is not because of artistic reasons but because of fitting on a program Mm -hmm. or fitting on a cd or they might want a duration because of those certain elements or they might want a certain instrumentation because they don't have the budget to get you know five tubas or something like right. that you know they're on the budget to get so those are understandable to some degree when it gets and it you know and that it's hard because i like i i like writing long pieces i like being involved in things i like writing pieces that are at least 10 minutes long even 10 minutes feels a little short to me and, and it's not that I want people to be, you have to sit and listen to my music for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. But it's just, I, I, I enjoy listening to pieces by other people that are long. I enjoy the investment. I, I like a return out of my, I don't want to hear something five minutes ago. Oh, that was nice. And then hear something else. Mm-hmm. It, it's not as engaging to me. It's not as rewarding to me. So I like longer things. So that's a bit of a problem when people have these real duration specific type of requests. And then the instrumentation too, like the same way that I have these funny personal things about like electronics, I have funny certain things about certain instruments and like certain instruments. I don't want to write with other instruments. I don't feel that they, the color works together or the register or something like that. So Mm -hmm. I have a lot of like, I guess you could say like, uh, idiosyncrasies of preference when it comes to instruments and timbre and, and those sorts of things. But those elements or those concerns are not as great as when people try to assign you things having to do with the meaning of the piece Mm -hmm. this drives me nuts right instrumentation one thing duration another thing when people say we want you to write a piece about the collapse of the freeway in an earthquake (laughs) or we want you to write a piece about politics of 17th century so and so we want you to write a piece about whatever that drives mm-hmm. me nuts that that drives me nuts because you know what i'm not uh you know get a film composer to do that you know, mm-hmm. the the those, there's other people that will augment someone else's idea here's one of the core elements the word art is becoming a tricky term these days mm-hmm, totally and i'm disappointed as such, and the reason is that art somehow in our society has become synonymous with the word "good." And what I mean by that is, if you say to somebody, "That's not art," it's ine- it's it's inevitably taken as derogatory comment, mm. right? A criticism, a negative thing. But for me, art is something that that has uh, it's much more specific. I don't use the word art very broadly. I think it's used way too broadly these days. So when you say something is art it doesn't mean anything. If everything's art the word art doesn't mean anything, right? Mm-hmm. So so there's a lot of sub levels to this conversation. There's a lot of sub things, but the point there's one small aspect of it that I'm trying to get at right now. And one of for me for me one of the necessary components for something to be considered art is that it is an autobiography. Rather than a biography or a fiction.
0: Okay.
1: For me, entertainment is fiction, mm-hmm. art is autobiography. And what I mean by that is great art, great art, mm-hmm. tells you something about the artist. Like when you hear Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, it goes, da 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 da. Like you get a feeling for Beethoven's personality, mm-hmm. right? When you see a Van Gogh painting. You get a feeling of that person. There's there's something inherently unique about the creator that is embedded in the work. Mm -hmm. When you see 99%, 95% of movies coming out of Hollywood, Mm -hmm. they tell you nothing about the people that make them. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: They're entertainment, right? They're telling you a fiction, maybe even a biography, but not an autobiography. Like when you watch some superhero mm-hmm. movie, you don't get a feeling of who the scriptwriter was. Totally. And, and there are exceptions. That's why I said 99% or not. like I said, 20 minutes ago, there are elisions, there are exceptions to all of these kind of things. And But an exception never disproves a greater generality. Mm-hmm. Right. So to get back to what I'm saying here, to get back to your question. So I don't want someone to tell me what my piece of music is supposed to be about.
0: Mm-hmm. okay
1: because that's for me to project as as an autobiographical but excuse me autobiographical element
0: mm-hmm.
1: when someone says we want you to write a piece about blah 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 blah, well you know i'm not a craftsman or a tradesman like i'm an artist if you want my art ask me mm-hmm. and i'll make my art that's that's how i feel about it and it might be egotistical it might be dogmatic i don't know but i don't really care that's that's what i feel like is most important. And then there are gradations, like um, I just wrote a piece for ensemble variances from uh, France and um, they're gonna be playing it here in Los Angeles in March, COVID permitting, but uh, they were doing a program called, uh, or it's a part of a program with uh, a piece by Olivia Messiaen and Gerard Grisey and uh, Thierry Pecou, who's an amazing French composer, wonderful French composer. And anyway, this commission was set up by uh, a friend of mine, Pierre Bibot who's a guitar player in Paris, teaches at the Paris Conservatory. And thank you, Pierre, um, if he watches this. Anyway, they were saying, they're doing a program called uh, Human All Too Human or something, but anyway, they requested a piece that would be something about animals or about nature. Mm-hmm. And that didn't bother me at all, because that's kind of what I already do. I, and I ended up writing a piece that had to do with, like, uh, I wrote it during the time when we are having uh, immense forest fires. Like, me and my wife, we live here in a, in a national forest at 6,000-foot elevation, way up in the mountains. We're surrounded by bears. We're surrounded by 200-foot-tall tree, ancient forest trees. Like, we're out there. And um at this time, we we're surrounded by wildfires all throughout the national forest, and so I ended up writing a piece kind of about um, uh, that had to do with a lot with that, with fire and flame and 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 that kind of things. But so there was an example of a commission where they kind of said we want the piece to be about something, but it was what I sort of already would have done.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know what I mean?
0: yeah and it's general enough to allow you to run with it in the way that you see fit to some degree yeah
1: to some degree yeah but i, I mean i have a very definite thing that like i'm doing um in terms of like programmatic music like mm-hmm. uh uh the semantic element of music uh i have a pretty definite thing that i'm doing and i don't want to veer from it i mean if somebody pays me a whole lot of money maybe I'll do some but I don't even really want to do that like I, I you know there, there's a certain uh type of inspiration and a semantic element a certain type of titles that I like to use a certain type of meaning that I embed in the pieces that I, I'm very much into and very much deep down this road and, and see no end in sight and really don't want to like stop to like write a piece about Julius Caesar right now, or something, something, you know what I mean? Like, I just, I'm not, no matter how much money you pay me, it's not about the money. It's, you know, so that's, that's kind of what I think. It's a good question you ask. And, and, and and, and that's what I kind of feel about it. It comes down to art versus entertainment. And, you know, art is, is an autobiography, and entertainment is, is, uh, is more of a fiction. And, And one is meant to be understood more immediately and then move on to the next thing and and the other is meant to require an investment and neither and it's not a value judgment i'm not trying to say that you know one is better than the other they just have different motivations different uh experiences and uh our society needs both Mm -hmm. our society needs entertainment and our society needs art it probably needs a lot more entertainment than it needs art but it doesn't devalue the importance of art and the the way that i will use that term in a in a more exclusive manner than than many people today would
0: Mm -hmm. so i I mean i could pick your uh brain all day about these nitty-gritty sort of elements and like how to divide up you know sort of large-scale things into smaller structures but um i wanted to get at a few extra things um so one of which is this idea of like uh the viking poet warrior i think is what you said And so I'm just curious, um, (laughs) and you sort of, like, I guess, uh, have this interest in, like, the the natural or, like, the violent natural state of things. And so I'm curious if you can elaborate briefly on that.
1: Yeah. um, The road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom. (laughs) I think that kind of says it all. William Blake quote. Well, I guess I would consider myself a warrior poet in a... Classical sense. Um, excess in a Nietzschean, Nietzsche sense. Um, if art is an autobiography, like we've been talking about, then, you know, as Jean Sibelius said, you know, I'm burning my boats and holding high the banner of real art. <laughs> that's another good one. I'm just throwing out quotes here to answer you. That's three quotes, I think I just said. Anyway, for me. I feel like you gotta, you know, it's like a little bit like Hemingway. Like, you gotta live a life that's exciting. Period. I, you're only here, honor. I, you know, I've had near-death experiences. I, I had a very interesting early life. And I feel like life is to charge it. Life is not about luxury. Life is to be challenged. Life is to, to you know, I don't want to climb the small hill. I want to climb the dangerous, big, tall mountain. The view is much better from the top, right? That's how I feel about things. Um, Zanakis is maybe my favorite composer ever. And, you know, he was, you know, his, he'd drive his wife and his daughter crazy because he wanted to go kayaking when there was a rainstorm in the Mediterranean. You know, or he wanted to climb to the top of Mount Olympus at the peak of the day when it was the hottest. You know, that, 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 that's the sort of thing that, you know. And so, you know, I have, I have, we have a lot of big dogs, you know, big German shepherd type dogs that are laying here right now. Looking very placid. There's a couple more that are not in the room. You know, and like I said, my wife and I and our son, we have a 16 month old son. We live in a national forest, and I've lived in the mountains for many, many years. And uh, there's bears, there's rattlesnakes. We climb mountains regularly. We go out, I get stuck out in the mountains past dark. Um, I spend a lot of time doing martial arts. Um, I'm constantly fighting with my friends. Big hello to guys at the grappling club, Izzy and Old Joe and Mean Joe, (laughs) if they watch this. Um, So, you know, the warrior poet thing, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. Back in, you know, in the uh, uh, Vendel era, Sweden migration area, era, uh, North. Northwestern Europe, post-Roman Empire, pre-Middle Ages, um, like post-Charlemagne, Charlemagne era. It was, you know, it, it, it goes back to the ancient Greeks, to be really honest, where, um, you know, uh, the well-rounded nature, art, physical activity, gymnasium, there's always music being played in, in when people were in the gymnasium, um and the way i'm talking about with like vendelera that kind of thing uh the great warriors um egel skaldgrimson these these great people in, in nordic history and nordic literature uh were warriors and they were poets they were they, they did great deeds and they were articulately you know able to articulate them and record them and you know. so there's an element of that that i've always felt i've always felt um 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 bound to this existence in a way that is oftentimes um, that is oftentimes um, unbearable. And I mean that in a heroic way, like a triumphant not a triumphant way, but a way that would that would that would lead you, lead me personally to to seek gl- glory. You know I'm interested in in um, I'm interested in struggle and challenge not for the sake of martyrdom, but instead for
0: heroic glory, okay. Um, interesting. Uh, I was gonna, uh, you know, fill in your words there and say hypertrophy, but maybe just because I wanted to say a fancy-sounding word. Um, but, sure, why um, not? I guess uh, I don't know what that
1: means I don't know what that <laughs> word means, but that's okay. or
0: just like uh, I guess like you know, uh, like the opposite of atrophy. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so sure. this is this is unfair to you know ask these or to ask about teleology and transcendentalism here as we're trying to wrap up. Um, so maybe in uh, instead of you know elaborating too much on that, can you sort of uh, give me just like a, a sense of like uh, materials or you know aspects of those lines of thought that you would suggest looking into to have a sort of deeper sense of what they mean to you?
1: Teleology and transcendentalism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, teleology and trans both are very important to me. I, I believe in both. I believe that I, I- I'm pursuing both teleology obviously the you know the the philosophical concept of teleology means goal orientated right is what that word means literally goal orientated so it's something about a goal and um it, it in music and art it, it's something that i guess it makes sense in visual art a little bit but it's more something that's more applicable to linear art okay. music poetry novel film whatever and the idea is that you have some materials, you have a theme, you have some idea, you have something that is moving or propelled towards an event that is then resolved, right? So um, um, it kind of comes down to like perception theory in psychology where like the way that we human beings drive enjoyment is through a couple things we number one have to be able to follow along and make predictions but those predictions have to be fulfilled in unsuspected ways and what i mean by that is like um if we're reading a book or watching a movie we have to be able to follow what's going on if we can't follow what's going on we go i don't know what's going on i don't like this but if we can follow along and exactly what we think is going to happen happens we go oh i saw that coming that was kind of okay Mm-hmm. It's when we can follow along, but something that's not quite what we expect happens that we go, ah, I like that. And that's why like in our society, like something like rhyme is so prevalent, mm-hmm. like in pop music or rap music or, or any music or, or any rhyme is something because the a rhyme scheme sets up an expectation. But if you know exactly the word that's going to rhyme, it's not as rewarding as if a word comes at you not quite suspected, but it does rhyme. Or like when someone tells you a joke, they'll say the joke, and if you know if you don't if it doesn't make sense to you, you go, I don't know, I don't get it, right? If someone has to explain it to you, you don't get. It. But if someone tells you the joke, your brain goes da 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 da, calculates all the possibilities of what the answer could be, but then they tell you the punchline, it's not quite what you thought it was. You go, oh. mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So. To me, those are some of the basic ideas about teleology. Where you need, as a listener in a effective work piece of music, the listener needs to be able to follow enough of the musical language to have some idea of where the piece is going. But then there has to be enough ambiguity inserted into the language so that there is some element of surprise and reward. Mm-hmm. And this is why, like uh, people still talk about and play Mozart and Beethoven and Wagner and you know Brahms and Bach or whatever is that they had the advantage that everybody spoke those musical languages, meaning mm. functional tonality. Right. Everyone knows that that dominant is going to go to the tonic, and because of that, they were able to insert incredible amounts of ambiguity into that musical language because people were already made, able to make expectations mm. or predictions or whatever you want to say. So they could insert like Beethoven. It, you know the dominant's going to go to the tonic, but you, but instead he goes this, does a whole other development section instead of a short coda. Or Wagner, uh, Tristan and Isolde, it's a three and a half hour opera, and you don't get a perfect authentic cadence in the tonic key until three and a half hours in, when it's love, death, and you go ah, oh, finally, because you constantly get these deceptive cadences. It's it's the ambiguity inserted into the predictability that makes things uh, uh, compelling. Gotcha. So modern composers have that problem where how much of your language do you expose so that people can follow you versus how much ambiguity do you insert so that it's interesting and rewarding?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's a challenge, you know. So you know, and you could look at any different musical language and say, well, that one has too much ambiguity, I can't follow it, or that one is too obvious and it isn't compelling. And I, it, so that's teleology. Uh, and, and to me, the other element of teleology that's just as important. Is that people don't often talk about too much in modern music that to me is so important in case you haven't guessed by now but drama okay drama and what is art without drama i mean that i i mean it is art entertainment is not necessarily art it's just it's entertainment art is art but it can also be entertaining Mm -hmm. and what is art if it's not entertaining What is entertainment if it's not art? Well, it's entertaining. What is art if it's not entertaining? I don't know.
0: Hmm.
1: Right? So to me, art has to have a a drama. And again, that goes back to the warrior poet thing. If you're telling an autobiography, where's the drama? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You can't make it up. Right. You can't fake it if you fake it, it's entertainment and it will not yield new information upon repeated exposure. It's disposable like entertainment, mm-hmm. but for art to be rewarding upon repeated exposure, you can't fake the drama mm-hmm. of an autobiography, right? So I'm trying to tie in a lot of the things we talked about you know, the last amount of time. And it all comes together with teleology and the teleology, there has to be that goal point where things are working and driving towards a point and that point is a point of culmination of, of of architecture and structure, as well as drama and inspiration, right? And that goal point, that teleological point, for me, is one of the fundamental elements in art, at least the music that I like to listen to and am compelled by. So that's teleology. Transcendentalism is, is another big topic, but I'll make it real short. Transcendentalism is basically... Um, you know, there's a different couple different ways to get into it, right? Uh, the broad-based way of transcendentalism is music that has, I already used this word, but a semantic element where the music means something more than just notes. It could be just a programmatic thing, like Debussy saying, this piece is about a fish in the pond. Okay, that's transcendental. Or it could be something more transcendental, like Bach saying, you know, this is the, the passion according to St. Matthew. That's a transcendentalism. Okay. Or it could be, you know, or like Olivia Messian, the 20 different ways to look at the infant Jesus. That's a transcendentalism. Or it could be a much more specific transcendentalism, like in Charles Ives, where you actually have direct references to the Transcendental School of Philosophy, which was an American school of philosophy in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, with Emerson, Thoreau hawthorne walt whitman that's the american school of transcendentalism the way there was a french school of nihilism or a german school of existentialism or, or a later american school in law that uh, ended up in the legal realm of with william james and pragmatism which is a word i used two hours ago <laughs> we're talking microtonality. so transcendentalism in that way has to do with the american school of philosophy and charles Ives, and he was you know charles eyes worked with a form we're talking about form a little bit charles Ives worked with a form that he called uh cumulative form okay. and a cumulative form he gives you a lot of stuff at the beginning and there's a motive here and a motive there, and then throughout the course of the work all these different things become spaced and partialed out and the and it's basically like a chaos to order sort of approach to musical material and that is an example of charles ives embedding transcendental philosophical concepts into his music transcendentalism according to um alexander (laughs) Skriabin. right Skriabin believed that he could uh you know enlighten the world about the coming of the fifth eon of time you know the first eon being cave people with the great spirit uh, the second eon being the polytheistic age, with like human beings united with deer horns, like the union of nature and human beings and the, the many gods. Then the third eon is the, uh, the monotheistic age, where those deer horns and the, the human became devil horns and the single god, you know, the, the, the three uh, Abrahamic religions of, of uh, Christianity, um, Islam, and Judaism. You know, and then the fourth eon of time is the one that we're just departing right now, which is uh, the age of atheism, which is where our gods are technology, right? And computers, you know, and we don't wait in line for hours and hours and pay all our money to a priest to heal us. We now do it to a doctor, Mm -hmm. right? We now pay this absorbent amount of money to a doctor and wait in line forever to see a doctor. To see science to heal us, so this atheist agent and Scrabbin was very interested in his transcendentalism. Was telling us about the coming of the fifth year of time, which is the resurgence of the baphomet, which is nature coming back in a way. And we can see this happening in certain ways, like uh, save the whales <laughs> mm. <laughs> or recycle. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like thirty years ago, nobody was recycling. Or... So there's there's things. So there's a lot of different transcendentalism. For me, transcendentalism is about um there's three big components in music composers usually fit into one of three categories and sometimes more than one i try to address all three traditionalist which i've already discussed formalist which we've talked about without saying it and transcendentalist which we're talking about now so formalist transcendentalist and traditionalist in whatever order (coughs) this is about why you get up in the morning and do something as ridiculous as make art mm-hmm. instead of catching a fish and building a fire mm-hmm. <laughs> right why do we not all work on wall street mm-hmm. right. why do we not all catch a fish and build a fire why the hell would we make art formalist traditionalist or transcendentalist those are the three reasons gotcha. right if you're a traditionalist you're doing it because you're following in the tradition and the lineage of this stuff right someone like mozart someone like Brahms. Uh, If you're a formalist, then you're somebody, the reason you get up and do art is because you're interested in the materials themselves. Uh, Formalist, someone like Beethoven, like what what Beethoven was into was the ways that he could manipulate sonata form and the way that a German augmented six chord could be reinterpreted as a dominant in this other key and all this kind of stuff. Stravinsky was another great formalist who said the music is about nothing but the notes, Mm -hmm. right? And then the transcendentalist is the third one. Uh, the great transcendentalist in the history of music certainly is Bach, right? Where Bach would have got up in the morning and he would have said, why do you make art, Johann? And he would have said, for God, or to reflect God, or I'm a an antenna for God, or glorify, whatever, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Wagner, a great transcendentalist. Wagner was trying to tell us about the, the, the dangers of the Industrial Revolution. Scriabin. And so anyway, in my music, I tried to do all three. There's a traditional element, like writing traditional orchestral instruments with as much as I can traditional notation, though I veer from that a little bit. Formalist, uh, not only all the rhythmic stuff we talked about and the micro, microtonality, but we didn't even talk about my uh, flat octave harmonic system, where even within equal temperament, all uh, the, the very... Uh, consistent use of certain harmonic elements with transpositions and with sequences and all this kind of thing and counterpoint. Um uh and then also in my music then the transcendentalist, the warrior poet, you know, and and uh uh the reflection of nature, the unification with the nature, whether it's violent or whether it's placid, whatnot. So so that's transcendentalism.
0: <laughs> it's funny uh a lot and of what lot you're of, saying like too. I, i've been pondering so much of what you have been saying um but you summed up a few things in such a neat way that like i'm like finally i get it and uh, i've read the <laughs> well, definition for teleology too many times and it's never made sense so
1: yeah yeah well you know and you know people are obviously free to disagree with me but uh I'll fight you for it. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> kind of not. <laughs> but, uh, you know, these are just my ideas. And these are mm-hmm. things that I have uh, uh, discussed and debated. And, you know, I'm open to changing my ideas at any time. i love to have discussions with people about I want people to challenge my ideas. and If they stand up, I, I cling to them. And if they, they fall down, I leave them behind, you know, and but these are these are my ideas that I've come to through a life where I've, you know, done a lot of different things. I've had a lot of vast experiences in life, a lot of time growing up in Hollywood, playing in bands at young age, time in the mountains. Confronting bears with my dogs, you know, everything and everything in between. Uh, again, you know, Um the brighter the flame, the faster it burns. <laughs>
0: um, I'm curious, uh, just to maybe end on this uh, very light, quick note, um, I'm curious what martial arts you would suggest for somebody who is out of shape and has never done martial arts or like what it, martial arts are you into? Anything. anything.
1: <laughs> yeah. Anything you want to do. Whatever you want to do, you're going to do it better.
0: Gotcha. yeah okay. you
1: know, I, I, I i've done a lot of different st- throughout my whole life many 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 different styles of martial arts whether you know asian styles i've done a lot of brazilian jiu-jitsu i've done a lot of uh western like what they call HEMA, which is like uh long sword grappling stuff uh, i've done glema which is a scandinavian wrestling thing I've, I've done a lot of different types of things and um and I think the one that's right for anybody is the one that they enjoy. None of them are wrong. None of them is wrong. It's, it's all about, you know, having a, you know, connecting the, you know, we're so out of, so many people are so out of balance these days. Like it's it's just, the number three is so essential to us. You know, it's like the mind, the body and the spirit. And the ways that you can connect those three and have them engage with each other and inform each other i think solves a lot of problems in life and i think a lot of people are really out of balance with with the mind the body and the spirit and, and i know that's a real uh a cliche but mm-hmm. i think that it is for a reason and i think that you know a lot of people spend a lot of time with the mind on computers and doing things you know and then they they're devoid of the spiritual side of life or or they're devoid of the physical side of life, or they just do the physical side and they're not intellectual you know mm-hmm. but I think that, that the three uh, are, are are greater than the sum of their
0: parts interesting okay yeah. um well I feel like I could you know continue asking you questions for <laughs> hours but I, I won't let you get out of here um you're sounds good absolutely always welcome back on this program um sure, be happy to absolutely. talk to you any other time um but sure. yeah um jeffrey holmes thanks so much for joining me it's been a pleasure yeah. talking to you uh do you want to direct anybody to like your websites or um if uh, you have my website is
1: yeah you can go to my website it's just jeffrey dash holmes so j-e-f-f-r-e-y dash h-o-l-m-e-s jeffrey dash holmes and that has links to works and list of works i've written and and uh recordings and list of performances and all this you know the general the usual boring stuff i i would like to though though i would like to thank uh michael Kaderka for enabling this to happen uh, I'm very grateful to him and in many many ways and, and and in this moment I'm grateful to him for uh uh making this interview possible I also like to give a hello to Dushan Bogdanovich I enjoyed his his he's a former teacher of mine and he was more than a teacher he's more of a mentor to me and I just want to uh throw his name in there I enjoyed his interview with you on this as well
0: and that's it cool yeah my I Feel bad that my interview with him is tragically underwatched for being uh, one of, I think, the the most interesting you know times that he's going to be talking on YouTube to somebody. I've seen other things that yeah. are uh, <laughs> um, where people aren't really. Well, you know, him like Nietzsche said,
1: I'll <laughs> leave you with one more Nietzsche quote here. This is the last thing I'll say today. Like Nietzsche said, that I believe wholeheartedly. He said, uh, you know, in relation to Bogdanovich, but particularly in relation to myself, and Nietzsche said this he said, uh, some of us are not born for today. And not even tomorrow.
0: <laughs> Very nice. Um, I thought you were going to say God is dead. But, uh...
1: <laughs> no, God is God is not dead. <laughs> not for me anyway.
0: Right. Cool. Well, uh, Jeffrey, thanks again for joining me. Um, okay. I guess I'll talk to you later. Uh, thanks Great. so much. Thanks, John. Adios. Bye.